0: This will not stand. That, 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 justice. Alone. Human rights are women's rights <laughs> <Save> the world.-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, and I have some good news for you. Humanity is winning the fight against AIDS. That is the top-line takeaway of the newest UN report that assesses the global fight against HIV and AIDS. It was released this week in advance of a very big international AIDS conference happening in Australia starting on July 20th. I catch up with Aaron Hofhelder, the Policy Director for Global Health at the One Campaign, to help me understand the report, to talk about where we are in the fight against AIDS, where the next set of challenges may come from, and also to offer you and I a preview of the big International AIDS Conference. We discuss where AIDS is most prevalent and why. We also discuss how new laws criminalizing the LGBT community in some African countries makes or really complicates the global health community's efforts to target interventions and may threaten the progress that we've made against AIDS in a very real and tangible way. It's a great conversation, interesting and timely. Remember to subscribe to Global Dispatches podcast on iTunes. And of course, every episode is available on UN Dispatch. Here it is, my conversation with Aaron Hoffelder. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
0: Foremost, I was pleasantly surprised by some of the dramatic progress that we've been making particularly on treatment access. So according to the latest data, we now have 12.9 million people on antiretroviral treatment. So that's pretty tremendous progress, that's up 2.3 million just in the last year alone. And what's even more impressive is when you pair that statistic with the number of new infections, which is decreasing this this past year with 2.1 million new infections. So that's still, of course, far too many for preventable infectious disease. But what's happened is we've now for the very first time hit what we're calling a sort of global tipping point or the beginning of the end of AIDS in that in 2013 we had more people newly added to treatment in the year than we had new infections. So we're sort of starting to first to barely but gradually get ahead of the curve of this epidemic for the first time. So we think that's a really important milestone that's worth pausing, noting, and even celebrating. The idea that we have nearly 13 million people on treatment is pretty remarkable. You know, I was thinking back to when we had the 3x5 initiative, and it seemed crazy to even think about having 3 million people on treatment. We've really made huge progress. So I would say that's, that's the first takeaway. But I would also say what's a bit worrying um, is that the epidemic is increasingly both geographically concentrated and concentrated among marginalized populations. So I think in some cases, to use a rather crass phrase, we've we've reached the low-hanging fruit, and now we really see the epidemic, you know, taking root and and even growing in places that are a bit tougher to reach and top, among populations that are tougher to reach. So.
1: Basically, you're talking about, like, sub-Saharan Africa, but not just sub-Saharan Africa, but, like, rural communities in sub-Saharan Africa? Is is that sort of what you're implying?
0: So I think it's both specific countries. So places like Nigeria and Uganda where you have major political strife, places like DRC and Central African Republic where you have – you know actual conflict or post conflict situations south Sudan in places like that you have a huge burden in fact um UNAIDS calls it the triple threat sort of a high HIV burden low treatment coverage and little to no decline in new HIV infections so for all the progress we're making in so many other countries and regions you know you've got sort of these tough countries and tough um, locations where we really aren't making the progress we need. So, you know, one key statistic that really jumped out at me was that Nigeria, Uganda, and South Africa are now accounting for 48% of all new infections, just those three countries alone. Um, So you take that sort of geographic concentration among specific countries, and then you also sort of layer that over in increasing concentration among marginalized populations, so men who have sex with men, transgender populations, sex workers, injection drug users, you know, we're seeing that those populations have, you know, hugely increased uh, likelihood of HIV infection relative to other populations. So, you know, Um, Men who have sex with men, um, it's 19 times more likely to acquire HIV. Transgender women, 49 times higher to acquire HIV than others among the adult population. So, you know, we're making a lot of headway and a lot of progress, but I think the work ahead of us is going to be tougher as we have to reach populations who for a number of different reasons are
1: marginalized within their communities. So, I mean, this brings up a whole, you know, different set of questions, but, you know, you have these recent laws in Nigeria and Uganda specifically, you know, uh, stigmatizing or making illegal men who have sex with men. I wonder, you know, from, you know, a global health or a health perspective, presumably that makes it that much harder to reach these populations that you say are the populations that need to be reached the most if AIDS is to be brought under control.
0: Absolutely. I think it's a really worrying trend. And I think you've got leaders from major AIDS programs like Ambassador Burks of PEPFAR, Mark Dybel of the Global Fund, Michelle Sadibe from UNAIDS, all sort of collectively speaking out against these laws because, you know, exactly because of the impact on the public health. Um, progress that we could be making otherwise. So I think, you know, particularly in a place like Uganda, which, you know, only a few years ago was really held up as a model for how to treat and prevent HIV, is now seeing such dramatic reversals. And I think, you know, HIV is already such a stigmatized disease, and regardless of sexuality or gender, so many people are fearful or, you know, worried about seeking treatment and prevention services. So to add on top of that, you know, a criminalization element, you know, is really um, making many people's lives much more difficult. And I think, you know, Ambassador Burks has made the point that it's not just even about LGBT populations. If people feel like going to the clinic is somehow additionally stigmatizing, no one's going to go to the clinic. So I think providers on the ground are really worried about this. I think the political solutions to it aren't particularly clear at the moment. And Um, You know, it may be a bit of a long slog here, but I think you'll hear a lot about that at the conference and hear about both sort of the the public health impacts on the ground, but also sort of ways to mitigate against that.
1: So speaking about the conference, the International AIDS Conference kicks off in uh, Australia on July 20th. Um, I guess, can you set the scene for us? Like, what is the IAC? Uh, What does it mean? And, And sort of, you know what's it like when you walk in, you could just walk in the room. What, what happens?
0: Sure. So every two years, the IAC is held somewhere around the world. Two years ago, it was in Washington, D.C. This year it's in Melbourne in Australia, as you mentioned. And it's this major gathering of um, a really interesting cross-section of people who care about the epidemic. So it's everyone from academics and researchers presenting their latest data to politicians who care about this issue or want to help drive up the political will to affect populations themselves and other activists, you know, one, to me, you know, one of the most interesting parts about any International AIDS conference is what's called the global village where activists from around the world can get together and share tactics and messages and sort of draw on each other's energy. Um, So it's a really vibrant and dynamic conference where you get a really interesting mix of science, of politics, of activism. Um, But each year sort of has its own distinct themes and sort of feel to it. So I think you're going to see a slightly perhaps quieter or smaller conference this year. I think given the location in Melbourne, it's making travel a bit more challenging for folks to come in internationally, a bit more expensive. So I think you'll probably see not quite as big a usual crowd as you might otherwise see. Uh, Um, But I think it's going to be a really interesting moment in time, particularly on the heels of all this new UNAIDS data that's teaching us both about the progress that we've made but the sort of major challenges ahead. And I think it will also be quite interesting politically as Australia, you know, for many years was doing quite well on foreign aid programs, including HIV, but recently, you know, has taken some major steps backward in terms of um, its aid budget and offering up cuts to the the foreign aid budget. So it will be a really interesting political dynamic to see how the government um, reacts to this, how they address these topics, given the political dynamics at home.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that the site of Melbourne was probably chosen before the current, uh, more right-leaning government was uh, elected to office. Um, So what are the the big, uh, is there like one big driving theme of this conference?
0: Yeah, so this conference's official theme is called Stepping Up the Pace, um, which I think is absolutely appropriate for the moment that we're in, right? So we we sort of have, you know, the full set of or you know, almost complete set of tools that we need to fight this pandemic. I think we're getting smarter about how to do that and how to target resources, um, but I think we're still not quite achieving the pace of acceleration that many had hoped we would, given all that progress and all those tools. So I think it's both sort of calling on leaders to step up the political will to make this a reality. Um, I think it's a sort of faster deployment and a smarter deployment of resources. And I think you'll see a lot of remarks that link this year's agenda to the post-2015 development um, debates and how HIV and sort of global health more broadly can and should slot into that broader development agenda.
1: Um And uh, I guess are there like specific outcomes from these conferences or is this just like a a gathering of minds and then people kind of go back home and plot strategies based on things that they've discussed?
0: It's a bit of both. I mean, I I think in terms of formal outputs, usually the conference will have some sort of declaration, a sort of statement of principles or themes that come out of the meeting. It's arguable how much real impact those have, but it sometimes can be interesting in really shaping and reframing the the dialogue for the next few years. I think the, the hallmark of a really successful IAC is sort of the extent to which people come out of it feeling energized and feeling like... They have the new momentum and the new networks to take forward and really push ahead in fighting this epidemic in sort of newer, smarter ways. I think for scientists, they, they come and they learn a lot about the latest research, and there's a lot of peer-to-peer dialogue that's quite helpful. You know, I'm coming at it much more from an advocacy perspective. So for me, it's much more about hearing the stories from the global village, meeting with political leaders, sort of making sure they feel like they have the wind at their back to do the right thing on HIV and forward, you know, there's no doubt that there's a zillion issues out there that any leader can and should care about, and HIV is just one of them. But I think moments like this are a good refocusing opportunity to share with leaders that this is still on people's agenda, it's still on the radar, and we will hold them accountable for making
1: faster progress. Um, so who's representing the U.S. at this conference? I know Bill Clinton will, will speak, as he does every year. I think back in the, the Mexico conference in 2008, I traveled with Bill Clinton on a plane from Africa to Mexico uh, as part of a you know, press that was war. a fun trip. It was. It was, it was, it was, pretty, <laughs> it was pretty intense. Uh, but, you know, flew in for a speech, gave a speech, you know, hung around for a while, flew out. Uh, but that's Bill Clinton, I think, in his capacity as the head of the Clinton Foundation. But I guess who is representing the U.S. government?
0: I'm not quite sure if the White House um, specifically is sending any individuals this time around, but I do know that Ambassador Burks will be there on behalf of TuckFar, mm-hmm. obviously as the U.S.'s primary bilateral AIDS program. Um, so I, my understanding is that she will be there to sort of drum up support, but also to sort of further Unroll and unveil, you know, the sort of PEPFAR 3.0 agenda, talking about some of the, the key messages she's been unveiling over the last few weeks about being smarter and more effective and more targeted. And my guess is she'll work with global advocates, um, not just to talk about PEPFAR, but also the broader sort of target-setting exercise that's going on um, in collaboration with a lot of other partners like the Global Fund and UNAIDS. So, and then, as you said, I think Bill Clinton will be there sort of on behalf of his work with the Clinton Foundation and with Chai. so I think probably talking about some of the investments they've been making, um, particularly around how to allocate resources in a smarter, more cost-effective way, and I think he'll be an interesting um compliment to Dr. Burks and many of the other
1: speakers there, and I should say, Chai is the Clinton Health Access Initiative for the uh, yeah. initiated there. Oh no, it's <laughs> easy to fall into it, it's, it's easy to fall into the acronyms. Um, yeah. I guess just just finally, I mean, you started by talking about marginalized populations, men who have sex with men, people who inject drugs, uh, sex workers, and transgender. I guess are there like what specific programs or strategies can you describe that, are, that, that target these what you call marginalized populations and the populations where incidence of AIDS or prevalence of AIDS is much higher than in the general population? Can you just like maybe walk me through what an intervention targeted to one of those groups looks like?
0: Sure. So I'm certainly not a provider on the ground, but sort of based on what I've heard from many colleagues, I think it's a couple different things. I think one is having really smart local people on the ground who know the communities well and have access to groups in ways that, you know, outside Western groups may not have. So being really smart about engaging with local partners is really important with key populations. Part of it is just a basic data challenge. So right now, for many of these populations, because they're stigmatized, we don't even have good data about, you know, how many there are in any given location or, you know, who's presenting for treatment at what time. And so a lot of groups, I think, particularly in the last year or two, have worked to be much smarter about data collection, pushed programs like PEPFAR and the Global Fund to get smarter about how they're tracking and measuring these populations so that they can deliver services more effectively. I think some of it is about not necessarily having branded clinics or branded interventions that are, you know, for these marginalized populations So making sure that these groups feel like they can assimilate as best they can and go a bit sort of under the radar if they choose to. So they feel like, you know, if if person X shows up at clinic Y, it doesn't necessarily mean that he or she is LGBT, you know, making sure that it – um it feels like a safe place for these people. Um And certainly in places like Uganda and Nigeria, since the new legislation has been passed, I think programming, you know, programmers have really stepped up their own security efforts and diplomatic efforts, but are, are really quite worried. Um, I would also say at a more macro level, it's a lot about, you know, epidemiology and targeting resources and programming to reach these populations. So, it's not necessarily always different interventions, but sometimes it's just being smarter about how you're spending your money. So, you know, in the days, you know, in previous years, um, you know, a lot of governments would take a lump sum of um, either foreign assistance or their own domestic resources and sort of spread it in a blanket way across their country or across sort of generalized populations without doing the sophisticated research to say, you know, in District 1, we may actually not have much HIV, but in District six, 7, there's maybe a ton, and sort of getting smarter about concentrating resources and concentrating interventions in a way that actually reaches the most marginalized population. So, you know, in a place like, let's say, Russia, you may not have a huge epidemic among heterosexual couples, but you may have a huge injection drug use population. And so the interventions that you choose to fund there would be radically different than you might choose in, let's say, Nairobi. Um, So, you know, I think it's really about being more targeted and effective, as well as being more sensitive on the ground at the local level.
1: Uh, Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your insights and thoughts, and uh, good luck in Melbourne.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mark. Great to speak with you.
1: Thank you all for listening. And for those new to the podcast, every Thursday I post shorter conversations like this about something topical and in the news. And every Monday I post longer conversations with foreign policy newsmakers or luminaries of some sort – And as coincidence may have it, on Monday, I'll post my conversation with Helene Gale, who currently serves as the president of CARE, the international relief NGO, but who's had a front row seat to the international fight against the HIV AIDS virus as a longtime worker at the Centers for Disease Control. She was there at the very beginning working on AIDS from a public health standpoint since the very early 1980s. And we have a long and fascinating conversation about how the global fight against HIV AIDS has transformed. Formed over the last 20 or 30 years. So stay tuned for that. Subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes so you don't miss it, or come back to UN Dispatch and we'll post it here. Thanks for listening. Bye.